Welcome to Horteras Presents, a brand agnostic interview podcast that seeks to objectively highlight the happenings within the world of diagnostics. And now, your hosts, Rich Thayer and Mickey Yade. Hello, and welcome to Hal Terrace Presents. My name is Rich Thayer, managing partner of Hal Terrace. And this is Mickey Yade, the founding partner of Hal Terrace. Today, we are joined by Dr. Alan Rudolph, Vice President for Research at Colorado State University. We had a wonderful discussion with Alan. Alan knows a great deal about a lot of different areas of science. We had a chance to talk with him about precision agriculture, about veterinary medicine. We talked to him about surveillance programs, and we learned a great deal. We know that you will, too. We hope you enjoy this. And now, our interview with Alan Rudolph. Welcome, Alan. We're so happy to have you here on the podcast with us. We look forward to talking with you. Would you please let our listeners know a bit about your background, your experiences in science? You've had such a varied career. I think you'd be very interested. Sure. Uh, thanks, Mickey and Rich. It's really good to see you too. And uh, thanks for the invitation to join you today in this conversation. Uh, so as Mickey said, I am Alan Rudolph. Uh, I am uh, trained as an evolutionary biologist, zoologist, and uh, that training uh, started in California, actually in Davis. And after my PhD, I left uh, and went to uh, the Department of Defense as a National Research Council postdoc to the very first national lab in the United States, the Naval Research Lab, founded by Thomas Edison in 1916. They were just starting a, a translational life sciences group for DOD mission. And uh, it was very interesting because they were broadly looking for new things to do in the context of biosciences and all that was happening at the time. So it was very productive 10 years at the bench. I did a lot of work on self-assembly of lipids and proteins, but also their applications um, in, in various ways for uh, diagnostics and medicines for uh, defense missions. I was then recruited to DARPA in the late 90s, and they were looking again to expand their life sciences practice and I went in at a very fortunate time because they were learning about new threats like uh, the offensive Soviet Union's uh, biological weapons threat because they were loading missiles up with kilogram quantities of anthrax at the time. And uh, this was revealed to us uh, at DARPA and we started working on that problem. But there were also many other problems uh, that they were interested in and in sensing their environment and responding in ways. So. I was really set loose in a very fundamental way at DARPA, came out um, very interested in scaling ideas and started uh, a number of biotech companies relevant to this conversation, a company focused on misfolded protein diagnostics and neurodegenerative disease. I met a woman, Cindy Orser, who was very focused on prions. And this was in 2003, and the country decided, even though we were at downer cows at the time, that the cattlemen and the Bush administration weren't going to be testing downer cows. We just weren't going to add the price to the pound of beef. So we pivoted that technology to other neurodegenerative diseases, and AdLife went on for six or seven years. Still, the IP sits in a new company called Presympto. Um, and then uh, I was recruited back by the Obama administration to run the, the country's biodefense programs. Uh, for first the Defense Department and then Homeland Security, where I first met Mickey. And uh, that was a portfolio replete with diagnostics for uh, protecting and, and uh, the United States in various ways. And then in 2013, I was recruited to Colorado State for my first academic job, partly because my uncle, I knew this place, my uncle came in 49, he was a Juilliard violinist, and started the music department here in the Fort Collins Symphony. He was on the faculty here for 55 years. So uh, Fort Collins has a uh, musical sweet spot in my heart. Uh, and I had some family here. So, uh, yeah, and just completing 10 years uh, as uh, vice president of research here. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you, Alan. Boy, you certainly have had an interesting and far-ranging career. You know, over the past several years, we've been hearing quite a bit about this concept of precision agriculture. Can you please tell our audience a bit more about what this means and why this is important? Yeah. You know, one of the grandest challenges of our times is feeding the planet. And uh, if you look at the estimates of the population of the planet and where we are, the, the productivity of our crops 
has to be dramatically increased, if not the nutritional content of our food. Um, protein is a big focus on the planet, uh, global protein, looking for alternative sources. We all know the, uh, the sustainability of beef is not in a direction that favors the planet um, in terms of both methane and water. All of these things have led to uh, both the, you know, the industry and the academy working on innovations to, to, to really bring solutions to that problem of feeding the future. Now, precision ag is really a way of saying, how do we do this smarter? Uh, what do we know about soil and plant health? And there are really interesting programs going on across the plethora of from discovery to application in that space. Things as basic as can we change the photosystem to complex to make it more efficient energetically in capturing CO2 into matter that we can use as food. And then you have the field applications, which, you know, it's funny in DARPA in the 90s, we were first, I worked on one of the first flapping drones because we were learning how birds used their wings or insects used their wings to create lift, which believe it or not, until the 90s, the engineers didn't know from a physics point of view, how a bumblebee got off the ground or you know, what are the real physics of bird flight in terms of lift and all that in the, in the flapping case, okay. But um, those drone applications were, if you had told me in the 90s that the agricultural sector would be one of the first adopters of drones in precision ag. So many of the sensors of, that are used in the ability to create more smart applications and innovations around food production, where the operations all around food safety and its delivery or supply chain. You know, many of these things um, are benefited from a, a suite of sensors and diagnostics that can be applied broadly, both in the air, drones, things like foliage cover, soil moisture, all the way into soil health. Um, and there are interesting drivers around that precision agriculture that you, we didn't have on our screen until the last decade where climate became important, such as many farmers and ranchers now are in the business of carbon management. So precision ag is not only about the production of food, but how do I optimize sequestration of carbon? Because that results in credits that can be then uh, used in the carbon markets to offset other operations that may be producing pollutants like biogas in the livestock community. So there, there's a set of optimization parameters that uh, ag is using now to optimize food production. And then, you know, the, the advances that you know all well within the, the biological realm are being applied. So soil microbiome and soil rhizospheres right now they're, they're doing more to understand what drives production in specialty crops, in monoculture. But, you know, how do you monitor that or how, how do you and, and, and over what domain size? Right. And OK, in crops like corn and rice, they're large domain monocultures. But in other mixed field or if you're not doing uh, irrigation practices or, or you're not non-tilling, there are a lot of more sustainable practices that drive you to being more aware, situational awareness of your operation and the sensors and diagnostics are becoming more and more applied in those realms to produce those outcomes. That's very interesting, Alan. I'm wondering, um, over the, the span of your career, how has the strategy for surveillance changed, perhaps in conjunction with biosensors or not? How are surveillance approaches uh, impacted by needing to surveil for infections versus chronic disease? Yeah, and, and you know, I'd say this is still a very significant issue for response, right? You know, if you look at uh, pandemic response or outbreak response, even if it's not at a pandemic level, I think the principle that the earlier you detect it, the better you can manage it still applies. Um, and so speed and accuracy become, you know, the drivers of a, a, an MVP or some sort of product development. And, and different sectors have tolerances for false, uh, you know, for rock curves that have false positives or false negatives. And, and those sort of drive different when we say, or say surveillance. So if we're surveilling for 
a human disease, we might approach it technologically similarly, but the dynamics of putting uh, a product into the uh, application space are quite different if it's a, an animal disease uh, where you cannot tolerate a false positive because you'll close the markets as opposed to a false positive in a human it's more tolerable in the context of the system consequences and impacts. All of that um, is a way of saying that it's a complicated, uh, it's a complicated portfolio to create around surveillance, and it depends on what outcome you're trying to drive in your surveillance mission. Now, in the Department of Defense, my experience was uh, more general, both environmental sensors, biosensors. Um, as well as uh, medical diagnostics. And, you know, e each of those have their own, you know, needs and, and gaps in where these innovations apply. The issue at the, at the outset of it, though, is, you know, the big concern in detecting something early and accurately is also, is it something you knew about? In other words, is there value in detecting an endemic chronic disease earlier? Well, there may be. But, but I think the pandemic experience has shown us that the search for the variant or the being able to better predict the dynamic change of a virus is really something that we still seek. And, and no one needs to look further than the annual flu vaccine to see how well we do that. And now we have, you know, COVID that we're going to be trying to do that better with as well. But it has surprised me how hard that has been to predict change in the, in the evolution of these microbes and, and then set up a surveillance system early enough and accurately enough to do something about it. And, and so now reflecting on my experience with this starting in the mid-90s in DARPA, there was this notion, well, we don't even know. Okay, we know some of the things that, you, that, that are bad out there that could really... Uh, flash and cause issues, Ebola outbreaks, you know, we, those go back into the 70s. We know about tropical medicine from our experience and what's possible. The adversarial intent, you know, aggravated the potential for that in ways. And you didn't know what was coming because of the, all of the developing engineering tools. If you recall, the Human Genome was published in 2000. So now with CRISPR and all these new tools being developed, the the level of anxiety uh, went through the roof, which is why CRISPR-Cas was 2015 listed as one of the major weapons of mass destruction for the uh, Department of Defense. And so suddenly you had a world of, I don't know exactly what I'm looking for, and I have to look for it as it evolves. And I think that's still very hard, but it led us to some of the earliest programs going general. Tissue-based biosensors was designed to say, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I know tissues respond in very predictive ways to certain kinds of agents, right? So it was more classifying agents and trying to get general responses um, and using cellular or tissue response uh, as a more general marker than a more uh, molecular recognition transducer system like an antibody antigen or a DNA or aptamer system, right? So, so we, we went at it with a strategy of both. You gotta have something out there that's a little bit of a canary. And that's why we were using animals as well, you know, animal sentinels. Uh, the mosquito stuff came later in my experience, but I was attracted to it for the same reason. It's a much more general collector of information and, and, and gives you a, a very quick snapshot across a broad landscape of information rather than I know what I'm looking for and take this PCR ELISA test. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So much of the surveillance today is predicated in the notion that we know what the things that we should be afraid of look like, right? as opposed to simply, we know the impact they'll have if they're bad, even though we don't know what it is. Yeah, very interesting point. Yeah, and, and you know, it's interesting because I think there was a, a proposal a few years back to uh, sequence all the bad viruses, the virome. They wanted $4 billion to sequence all the, the nasty, you know, the list of nasty viruses. But I'm not sure that, I mean, you know, it's like the human genome when we did that. I'm not sure because it's a snapshot. 
how well it would have informed us about what's coming, right? Because it's really those environmental pressures, climate pressures that that trick you and, and you don't know when something's going to jump and, and, and it's going to change its virulence. Yeah. Well, so many of these diseases are, in fact, zoonotic. So what about the notion of actually monitoring the animal species in some systematic way in order to get the information about what's likely to be a source of a new infection in humans? So right now, that's a really big issue in wildlife. It was brought to the fore and 30% of the white-tailed deer are seropositive for for SARS-CoV-2. Amazing. That's a huge reservoir of virus that, you know, could undergo and is undergoing variant changes in those animal populations. And what I found, and, and I think when you both came to campus and we were starting to show you some of our portfolio in the diagnostic space, we intentionally set up these diagnostic experiments with multi-species, the terraforma kind of stuff. Did we talk to you about that? We're in containment. We are essentially able to replicate either a wet market. So we had, you know, multiple bird stacks or, you know, Dick Bowen was mixing, you know, rodents, birds, water, soil, and, and, and then introducing H5N1 and watching it evolve in this little ecosystem over time. And he can't get funding for that work. I mean, but, you know, we just don't work on transmission. But as soon as you start to focus on something like that, you're in the dynamic space of change and watching. And, and I think it's really hard to get that work done. Absolutely. You know, something I've been very interested in for a while now is environmental DNA, eDNA, as a very practical way to interrogate areas for animals or pathogens or whatever. We don't see a lot happening with that right now. I've seen some small research projects, but are you aware? Is, is this something? Yeah. We actually have, we took, we got $12 million from NSF when in their BII program in an aerobiome project, project. So we're very actively looking at that in interesting ways because some of it is just in indoor air as well, right? You know, it's, it's involved transmission. But, you know, the other place that I see the potential for its expansion is in the wastewater surveillance that came out of COVID. I mean, you, this, you and I all knew that that was a source of information but the world has woken up and, and now we've got, you know, Colorado Department of Public Health and there's a wastewater, you know, national network now. So I think that the environmental information from streams like that, Agar's using it now, might, you might see some proliferation of that. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, just some of the, the remarkable studies that we've seen in the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. There was that amazing work that was done in Copenhagen where they had air... Uh, filters and there was a nearby zoo, but they then were looking at what species were they they uh, aliquoting, if you will, with uh, this approach. And the most amazing one to me was they found DNA from a guppy in an aquarium in the zoo in a wow. building. So, wow! So like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, and and you know the other approach, you know that prophecy program that Callahan ran at DARPA which, you know, was intentionally set up to rich look for spillovers by consistently surveilling. You know, and I went to visit some of these towns with Michael in, uh, in Thailand, the town of Bo, where, you know, the bike path was underneath the, the bat, the, all the bats on the trees, and they were all over the people on the bikes. You know, I mean, there was real exchange of, of, uh, of DNA between these populations. And th those are good uh, programs, I think, to focus on that you know, that interchange. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. There's so much that can be done, but there's, it's going to cost so much money to make it happen. Just don't know. Well, and, and, and it surprised me that, you know, okay, a pandemic, we all said that's going to wake the world up and you can't get, I mean, the USDA is not really an agency that can drive innovation and, uh, and you can't get wildlife, even they're responsible USDA, USGS to some extent. But yeah, I mean, chronic wasting disease is a good example. It's been here for 50 years and, and they couldn't control it. Now, could you say if they put more money into wildlife? Maybe because they you know, tend to put so much into human diagnostics. But if the world woke up and said, you know, the way to shut this channel off is understand the zoonotic channel 
and go at the host reservoir species in a very intentional way. And we're just not focused there. Yeah, it makes too much sense. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I know you want to talk more about food and ag, and I'm happy to do that. I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot going on in the in the diagnostic space of disease and crops and that kind of thing. Um, and then the food safety issue is a huge one, right? I mean, I, I, I know you folks have dealt with that as well. I mean, that, that, that issue in many respects is still a bit of a sampling one, right? I mean, if you look at some of the operations, like in the, I, I go over to the uh, JBS, the Montford plant here, they produce 5,200 head of cattle a day but they still go out with an E. coli test to an eight hour cycle so that they wait for the answer by the end of the day. And if the answer is positive, that 5,200 head of cattle gets discarded and they scrub the plant. So the real time nature of, of food based diagnostics in the context of the supply chain, I think still has room for real time. And then the closer you get to more time, the more you start getting nervous about accuracy based on, you know, if I have to throw out or my, yeah. I suddenly close the trade business for my business because of a positive, uh, the closer you get to real time, the more you worry about that. And that's, that's where I see some of the data science and AI, you know, helping in terms of that last mile of accuracy on some of those before they make a call that, yeah, we've got ASF and the pork market's going to close for six to 12 months. Yeah, and with the, the continued consolidation across the, the farming and the ranching industries, right, those problems just get exacerbated and get, you know, larger and larger. And those those time delays to results are significant. Yeah. And, you know, we've talked in the past with you as well about, you know, do you, do you move it potentially some of it away from the point of production and put it to the point of distribution? You know, is there a role for supermarkets or for, you know, perhaps restaurants to be doing some of this, you know, point of use or point of sale testing? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. And, and you folks may know better than I, but I remember even at DARPA, there was lots of packaging with, in, you know, intact in sensors for spoilage or other things that you might be looking for from contamination. And many of those uh, don't get deployed in part. And I learned this through AdLife and trying to develop a test for mad cow disease. The margins in food products are so small that you can't recover the cost of deploying or investing in that test. Now, Another development that I found very interesting on our campus, and it happened uh, in the last few years, but Zoetis put 50 scientists on our campus and in something called the Zoetis Incubator. And, you know, it's, it's really been interesting to watch that multinational animal health company, which is, you know, got a companion animal business. And of course, through the pandemic, people bought pets like never before, but also the livestock business. And, and, you know, there are major issues that drive them in their own profitability. And then they, they're going to be turned to, for example, if there is an ASF outbreak, well, who makes that vaccine, right? And we're going to, make, we're going to have an Operation Warp Speed for African swine fever, but in an entirely different context, right, with an entirely different sector that operates on different economics. And it's going to be really interesting to see how all that works out. You know, there's so much money that has gone in recently to point-of-care OTC testing platforms. And everybody's out there trying to do exactly the same thing. They did SARS-CoV-2 first. Now we expand to a respiratory virus panel. Maybe we add an STI panel to it. Many people who are competing here, doing exactly the same thing, really haven't any idea about some of these other markets, like um, the ag uh, and, and, uh, and vet. And can you help them understand a little more about where those opportunities lie and how they could actually use the technologies they have They have to go to a completely different place that would add a lot of value? Well, there's no doubt. I mean, even in, even in the advances that mostly have been driven by human diagnostics, they have trickled into the animal diagnostic space. But you know well that the cost of a COVID test, 65 to 135 a test, you know, when it came out, you know, you can't put an animal test on the market for more than a dollar or two, right? I mean, it's just not a viable market. So, you know, what immediately happens is most of them look at it and say, well, how in the world can I make money off of that market? Now there's larger volumes and 
and, and Petco's with Banfield Clinics now, Mars clearly has made a business out of the Banfield Clinics and are good examples of where they're trying to introduce, you know, predictive medicine into the animal uh, space. And I think they're doing okay, but they're driving it more with, I think, a bit more on the data side uh, in analytics than than bringing in new technology platforms. But no doubt uh, those markets are available to human diagnostics. It's really the economic dynamics of whether they can be appreciated. And then, you know, frankly, having tried, Cellfire was a great example with freeze-dried platelets. For many years, Cellfire had an animal and a human business and the investors said, well, you know, you can't do both. You got to, most of our companies are human or, or animal. So, you know, there's a bit of a cultural thing within the investment community about what company are you and platform companies, of course, can get away with this. But when you get closer to development, you know, the focus on the market and sector you're, you're uh, guided towards tends to be investor focused. Yeah. But to your point, just yesterday, I was talking to a company that was in the, the, the founders were in human diagnostics and they have yeah. pivoted to vet. And they've gone to a few VCs recently that just were not interested in diagnostics for humans any longer. But they perked up when they heard about VET, ah, which they thought was very interesting. Um, they found some very interesting niche plays there. But, but I just wonder whether, you know, there would be an opportunity. for. Well, you know, the other thing we found, and we've had examples of this with failed uh, drugs in human trials that have worked in dogs. VET DC was a company we started, for example, that had a failed clinical lead in, in humans, but we've licensed it back into a VET company. And it's it's working in dogs. And and so the natural animal models in the FDA and the National Academy are getting uh, some attention. Right. Because not only the success of jumping from mouse to man or or, you know, uh, strains of, of bred animals, but some of these models, natural models, models like an osteosarcoma is an example and Labrador retrievers are very close to the human etiology of disease. So if you have countermeasures, diagnostics or therapeutics that serve one, we've seen that sort of translation through animal uh, efficacy that can that can be valuable. And to your point, I mean, we have a company because we're one of the top vet schools in the country. We're just spinning out a company called Quandry which is focused on GI microbiome in, in animals, dogs. And, and yet it could be a very uh, strong place to pr pr generate predictive power to convince investors or the company to eventually spin out something in human. Now, back to your original point, it's focused on the animal side. It's not speaking to investors about humans yet. Yeah. Your, your comment about the repositioning of drugs for the animals reminds me of a quote from Judah Folkman many years ago where he said, if you have cancer and you're a mouse, we can take very good care of you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think the animal diagnostics, and, and it's interesting because I think you know we have a National Animal Health Laboratory Diagnostic Center here. That's a national node. And these diagnostic centers, I mean, we do 600, 700,000 samples a year. And during COVID, all of these leaned heavily into human public health departments. So our, our animal health diagnostic lab was doing COVID tests for 18 to 24 months and supporting almost the entire state of Colorado's, uh, in this case, the senior care workforce, because we were surveilling that workforce because in the absence of vaccine, there was high morbidity and mortality in the nursing homes, and there were asymptomatic people going into those places. So the vet diagnostic labs were the source of support, at least in Colorado. And then what I heard, it was true in other states, because these state public health labs had no experience with that kind of volume. Hmm. Amazing. Alan, I'm hearing a recurring theme throughout this discussion of the importance of better understanding the entire ecosystem in which we live. You know, from uh, zoonosis to spillover events leading to outbreaks to understand the impact of expanding agriculture, deforestation to potentially global warming and amongst the whole mix of, you know, the chronic infectious diseases we live with every day. And it's also a big cauldron, if you will, of stuff that needs to be perhaps teased apart and better understood. You've mentioned surveillance tools. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on, on what else might happen to help deconvolute or, or monitor that whole space? Well, I think this is why the, the new favored term, at least that I've heard more of in this academy, is One Health, right? But that's a term that's been used a lot. And, and uh, but for me, it kind of represents what you just said. I mean, you know, One Health, you know, the, the simplest diagrams we all see is animal people, uh, animals, people in the environment. But, you know, the reality is these land grants have a long history of ecosystem health. And One Health is a very important concept now that we understand better. But we have such a fractured government. You know, it's, it's a little like biodefense. There is no one agency that has that mission and they don't talk to each other. And more importantly, although I think this is going to happen, the data is not interoperable or shared. And so what I've seen in Tracy Mac, do you know Tracy McNamara? Is that a name you know by any chance? She discovered West Nile virus in the Bronx Zoo. And she's kind of been the One Health, uh, one of the One Health spark plugs in government and the commission. So, you know, I mean, they're all doing the right thing and saying the right thing. But, but, you know, the reality of mounting a integrated approach to health, to your point, Rich, that appreciates that it's an ecosystem infrastructure, especially in infectious disease. Now, you know, I, I, I'd be probably standing on less firm ground with other things like cancer or, or metabolic disease. But, but, you know, I think clearly this infectious disease space, we've been shown perhaps the most clear example of why we should care about One Health and the ecosystem health that you described. And, and yet, I don't think we're structured um, in any way to really approach it quite yet, except for the data. Yeah, yeah well stated. Alan, I know you've got a lot of interest in, in ag in particular, and some of the major diseases that are threatening crops worldwide. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that and perhaps things that can be done with sensors or tests to help those situations out? Yeah, well, um, one... So you're right, you know, coming to a land grant of this size and with a large ag, you know, they were all A&Ms before they became state schools, right? So Colorado State was Colorado A&M. I think it changed in the 50s. So agricultural mechanics. So you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, being able to grow crops and and do that in a way that allows your community to thrive is kind of the history of these uh, ag A&M schools. My experience here at CSU, uh, I probably would point to uh, my relationship with Mars Corporation. Uh, and that, that really started in, at DARPA because uh, the, the CSO of Mars was a food nutritional scientist, Harold Schmitz, really interesting guy. And he came to DARPA interested in human nutrition and, and the troops, uh, you know, could we make better bars uh, for nutritional reasons and things like that. But... Uh, Mars, of course, most people know is the chocolate company, not necessarily as one of the large animal health companies or, or human health companies. And cacao. Cacao uh, is, uh, of course, a global crop, but Cote d'Ivoire was having major issues with the production of cacao. And one of the most uh, perplexing and challenging issues, which I believe they still haven't solved, is aflatoxin. And aflatoxin uh, in the production of cacao was resulting in major losses, so much so that they actually moved some of the major operations outside of the region to try to just go to a different place where they could, you know, be free of that disease, but uh, of that toxin. And and so, you know, there there were great examples where they were there were major challenges and threats to crop production like that where. You know, companies would turn to academies like us and others looking not only for new tests, but how do you deploy these things? You know, what is the sampling rate? How, how, do, how do you really put this into play? In Colorado, uh, wheat and potatoes, in fact, the largest royalty to the university is from our uh, plant varietal patent portfolio, where uh, we're able to make, uh, for example, whole wheat attributes of white flour, uh, white, white grain and, and things like that. But, but in the background of innovations like that, of course you have rusts, you know, potato and wheat rusts and, 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 you know, unlike some of the other threats that we, uh, were challenged with that are bacterial or viral, 
some of these things, you mentioned citrus screening disease, are really hard to culture. And, and so you don't have the fundamental uh, tools because, you know, they may be anaerobes and you can't really easy grow them out and, and study them in ways that you can when you can expand other cultures of pathogens. So and, and then, of course, if you have a solution, citrus screening disease is a great example where they've tried to genetically engineer uh, and free uh, the genome uh, of potential contaminants of that make it susceptible to citrus screening disease. But innovations in a in a uh, a tree population like citrus require years of demonstration that you've solved a problem, right? I mean, you can't grow the plants or the trees fast enough to know whether your solution in the context of deployment is viable. So citrus greening disease is a great example where the Florida citrus crop is mostly uh, you know, being shifted to foreign sources and Florida has not really been managing the citrus greening disease uh, well at all. It's, it's, you know, the analog to chronic wasting disease in deer and elk. So, you know, um, these are really, really big challenges. Now, you know, what's interesting about all the microbiome work is that we tend to think of solutions and point solutions for individual pathogens. And as we learn about populations of, of, of pathogens and what they're doing in soil and plant interfaces with soil, the solutions may become more complex and more population-oriented, community-oriented, rather than individual vaccines or individual diagnostic tests. And, and I think that's coming because there's been a huge investment in microbiome um, and understanding how, how the relationships between these organisms and ecosystem health. And I think that's going to pay off in solving some of these really challenging problems in, in crops uh, like cacao and uh, citrus. Do you think there's an opportunity to design tests that could help? For instance, if I recall with citrus green, you go up and you actually look at the individual tree and yeah, um, yeah. Decide whether you're going to collect from that tree or not. If you had quick, rapid tests to tell you that, would it help in any way? Or would sure. the cacao yeah. with some toxin? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think those kinds of screening tools are really needed. And and yes, they, they can be very helpful. And I, and I do think they've made some progress in, in some of that, uh, you know, it's always interesting back to this question of sensitivity and specificity, right? You know, you, oftentimes you deploy a sensor. Uh, I recall when the defense department was investing heavily in hyperspectral imaging, right? Where they wanted to be able to do a non-invasive interrogation and essentially read out what pathogens were in a cloud. If we thought an adversary had released a cloud of spores headed your way. Well, the reality is we couldn't do that. So we ended up looking just for tryptophan, right? You know, did it have a higher biological content, a much more generalized signal than a specific one? That's kind of what's going on in citrus greening right now, where you can kind of look at the leaf and you can say, well, what, what percentage of the foliage looks like it has some disparate color? And, and maybe that's my trigger that I'm in the field with. And so, yeah, they, they've got a bunch of cell phone type of of applications they're now trying to use to do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Now, that would be an example where perhaps you screen in that way. And yeah. I have no idea what the specificity is of something like that, because if there are a lot of false positives, you're going to be throwing away a lot of fruit that you don't want to throw away. That's right. So you did that first and then had a rapid test to follow it up with, say, no, in fact, this isn't a true positive. It's a, it's a false positive. Yeah. Perhaps it could help. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, this has been fascinating. I could spend forever chatting with you about this whole. I had not heard that term. One, one health. That's new to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, you'll find a rich uh, community out there defining it in different ways. Uh -huh. It's a little like sustainability, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if we can have the space force, I wonder why we can't have a one health agency that's laying the groundwork for how one might start to amalgamate or you know intercalate data from lots of varied sources. So, you know, there, there are snippets of that. I know the vet, so they're trying to combine a medic, electronic medical records with electronic veterinary records. Hmm. They're trying, uh, for example, we have a corporate partner who's starting to invest in a biobank that would collect humans and their companion animals at the same time. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are snippets of recognition of this in, in some way that could pay off, but... Uh, it's still just a 
fractured. I mean, you know, the USDA is responsible for animals and NIH is responsible for humans and they really don't talk to each other and uh, they don't share data. Gets back to your microbiome issue too, because we're constantly sharing microbiomes with our with our companion animals. Oh yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, I, I imagine, I hope your dog's breath is not as bad as mine. <laughs> That's what I think about when that dog licks me is like, holy cow, what microbiome did I just inherit? <laughs> One of the things coming out of the pandemic that people appreciated out of the sampling we were doing around humans is longitudinal sampling, right? Yes. Now, longitudinal sampling, you know, we've known for, you know, diagnosticians know the predictive power of longitudinal sampling, but you kind of wonder, will it open the eyes of, you know, wellness in the context that we ought to be sampling people before they're sick, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is interesting that we've kind of had this shift in thinking in the last decade, maybe two, of dealing specifically with the earliest point at which you become ill, right. as opposed to saying, what is it you need to do to stay healthy? Right. And when are you making the transition from wellness maintenance to disease maintenance. So, you know, we've talked before about some of these things, just the testing you can do to know that you're actually maintaining illness before or maintaining wellness before you become ill, changes in metabolites, changes in processes, which are not in and of themselves diseases, but they're on the way to it. So it's a very interesting change in, in thinking that that's led to these wellness programs and uh, companies that call themselves wellness companies, it hasn't been completely fleshed out yet, I don't think, because it's a little peculiar how some of them define wellness, but um, it's a very interesting trend. Yeah. Yes. In fact, uh, you know, one of the centers that uh, we started here, and I, I got to learn a lot in starting it, is a center for healthy aging, but it was it's led by a veterinary surgeon who is actually using the dog as an aging model. Um, and the teams that are focused not just on the dog, but at the cellular level are looking at markers of aging more generally, whether it's in uh, the genomic content uh, of cells or dogs, um, but uh, you know, across a broader spectrum so it's not necessarily focused on neurodegenerative disease, although dogs will show signs of Alzheimer's just like humans will, but looking over the lifetime of dogs. And then, of course, small dogs live longer than large dogs. So there's some interesting you know, dynamics in, in dogs that may be informative. But these Centers for Healthy Aging, I wonder whether there's been a more of a proliferation of them over those two decades that you've described. And you know, one of the programs that I got involved with here in Colorado is called the Colorado Longitudinal Study. And it was started by Larry Gold and Somalogics, but it's got Don, you know, it's got some heavy hitters and Ginger Graham and Don Elliman, who's the chancellor of uh, Onshoots. And, you know, their, their goal is to collect a million Coloradoans over 10 years in a longitudinal biobank set up to track wellness and predict disease as, you know, somalogics is trying to do with the soma scan. So, so, you know, there's a return to the good idea and, you know, the ad life vision like you was way too early where we said, well, we can give you a panel of your misfolded protein profile over time, just like cholesterol and lipoproteins. And you will see, cause we had evidence that as you, age, that changes and it becomes more predictive in mild cognitive impairments and Alzheimer's later in life, especially if you're covering, you know, a broad spectrum of amyloids, A beta, alpha, synuclein, transthyretin, you know, you go down the list, prions, that gives you a, a holistic picture of neurodegenerative health or neuroprotein health. And, and, you know, we didn't get there because no one would pay for that. Not only is there not a therapeutic to deal with any of those diseases well, but uh, what would you do with the answer uh, once you got it, right? So, so it didn't make it at the time, but I still think those kinds of panels are especially in places like certain parts of health will be more predictive of wellness as you 
go through life. But the longitudinality of that sampling in the wellness sector becomes really important because I don't know how you do it on snapshots. Yeah, there, there is a study, of course, going on uh, that's being funded by the Morrison Animal Foundation there in Denver. Uh, it's called Golden Retriever Life Study. They call it GIRLS. Yeah. And yeah. they've got, I think, 3,000 animals that have been going on for well, more than a decade now. Some of them are starting to pass away, but they have samples from the entire life cycle. The longitudinally yeah. taken. Yeah. It's amazing. In fact, Colin was working with them on that, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, we are. Our vet school and, and cancer centers working there. And you're right. I think Morris Foundation, even, you know, Zoetis, companies like that realize the power, just like human pharma, of those kinds of banks. And it's it's a little easier to do it in animals uh, than it is in humans uh, if you can get the cooperation of the, of the owners. Right. Yeah. But, you know, I guess the interesting thing about the wellness discussion, and I don't know, maybe it's a question for the both of you, has the is the insurance or CMS side of this started to change at all, right? I mean, I hear things like the UK supports uh, forest walks. You can get reimbursed for equine therapy now in states in the United States. You, you know, there are things that we have less well understanding mechanistically of how they contribute to our wellness, but we're starting to pay for them because I think insurance companies realize the return, even if they don't know why quite yet. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that, Alan. You know, we are in the, the midst of a, a, a change in how healthcare is seen and provided in the U.S. from uh, fee-based you know, services over to value-based care. And those plans are built around the notion of enhanced uh, preventive medicine and primary care. So, yeah, they, it, which, you know, by definition has to involve some level of, you know, wellness verification or wellness testing. And I'm understanding that um, a chunk of the budget for the health system in the UK also likewise being set aside specifically for improving um, awareness testing around, you know, preventive medicine, primary care programs. So, yeah, um, there is money beginning to follow those notions. Yeah. You know, back to my experience a, a decade ago with, with Tethys in, in uh, diabetes prevention. At the time, we would go to third party payers and we talk about this and they had really very little interest in it because <laughs> they, they considered it remarkable if someone stayed in their system for two years, usually more like one year, and they would not benefit from it hmm. um, over that period of time. So they weren't willing to pay for prevention. Uh, My argument with them was, but you're getting the other guys, people that didn't pay for it either. So isn't it best if everyone pays for it? But I could never get past that. Yeah. It was the, it's those who have responsibility for the long-term costs of a patient that are going to be interested in prevention. So, yeah. you know, health maintenance organizations and others that, you know, someone gets into Kaiser Permanente for 18 months and they're usually going to stay for 18 years. They worry about these things, whereas other people don't have that concern, won't pay for it. Yeah. The direct, the new director of ARPA-H was a vice president of research at Adelaide for Nate Verkshin, and uh, she's a prion biochemist. Oh, and I, you know, and and yeah, so she was involved in the Adelaide vision of let's create a wellness platform around brain health. So I I, I expect that ARP H is going because you know they're they're new and they've got to try to survive in NIH and they have to show how they're different and how they're DARPA like. They may be going after wellness in some interesting ways. Uh, they may do it in spaces that have shown less efficacy in other directions, like mental health, right? I mean, we have a guy in campus that's developed, we've been working a lot in VR and health. Um, and we have a guy in campus that's done this immersive forest walk and it's got evidence-based outcome. It's as effective as SSRIs in the adolescent population. So, I mean, you know, what do you do with that in, in terms of the, the system you're in now and how you would use technology to, to change the paradigm of a of a scenario that's clearly not working for us in many ways. And and so, yeah, I think ARPA-H is going to look at wellness and see what they could do with it. Prescription virtual reality. And it's, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, it is. I, I, uh, I've had a lot of fun with that here because of the, having the students. We, we did these VR events where you buy a pizza and pop for 48 hours and turn them loose and they could create immersive experiences and many of them were about around health and it really opened my eyes i mean i'd come to this i'd done a brain machine neuro 
tech program at DARPA and I got some experience in VR and health through DOD because they've been in VR a long time. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Rich. I think it's going to be a really fast moving thing. And there's this one, co- it's in, it's coming up in interesting ways too, but uh, there's one company out there, if you haven't seen, you should take a look at it. It's called Trip, T-R-I-P-P. Wow. Yeah, they have uh, essentially, you know, I mean, a big part of their business is virtual meditation and virtual group therapy, but they have uh, really made a lot of progress. They have a woman CEO, it's in the Bay Area, came out of elect- the gaming industry and they got involved with the VA and their New York State mental health system. So, yeah, there are some really interesting VR health companies that are moving spe- fast. And since we're so visually dominant, the mental health space is an obvious one. Exactly. Alan, this has been a very insightful conversation. Thank you. You know, we heard you mention um, your departure as vice president of research at Colorado State University. So what's next for you? You know, it's a great question. I've been uh, equal times in government industry as a you know small startup biotech guy, uh, CEO, and now the academy. Um, you know, what's next for me is doing something I haven't done that's... Uh, that's going to make impact both in people's lives and 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 probably will involve new new science and technology that I would learn. I don't so that's an answer as you can clearly tell. I don't have it in perfect focus, but uh, it's going to be a, a a good change. I uh, I start I'll end where I started as an evolutionary biologist. Molting is a good thing, and uh, you may be vulnerable for a short period of time, but developing new skin is always a uh, in my case, been a rewarding experience. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, we look forward to hearing where you wind up. You know, again, thank you very much. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Your list of things you haven't done is getting shorter every year. <laughs> That's true. And I was so impressed when Mickey, you know, with your help launched this podcast, because, you know, we talked, when Mickey and I talked last, we talked a lot about science communication and how important this is and so i appreciate what you're doing and how you're doing it holteras presents is produced by holteras associates a u.s-based bioscience consultancy that provides strategic and tactical services in the areas of diagnostics medical devices and life science research to clients of all sizes the views information or opinions expressed during the episode are solely those of the individuals involved and Holteras Associates is not responsible for any errors or omissions or for the results obtained from the use of this information. The information provided in this episode is for informational or educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Holteras Associates would like to say thank you to this episode's guests or guests and thank you for listening to this episode of Holteras Presents. Thank you.